الجزيرة بودكاست North Korea is sometimes called the Hermit Kingdom. Its borders are tightly sealed, and very little information gets in or out. For decades, one family has maintained a brutal grip on North Korea. It is the world's most isolated country, the world's most secretive country. You rarely hear about what life is like for North Koreans, but we do know they live under the totalitarian leadership of Kim Jong-un and have to endure strict international sanctions. North Korea has been targeted with tougher and tougher sanctions by the U.S. and the international community. Now, some young defectors are finding a way to tell the world their story, from South Korea, to correct a stereotype they say is misguided. And they're using the power of social media to do it. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Around 30,000 North Koreans have defected to South Korea over the last two decades in the hope of finding a better life. They share the same peninsula, but North and South Korea are worlds apart. Some North Koreans have a tough time trying to settle in to their new lives. I spoke to my colleague, Johanna Hoos, who's covered their story. I'm a producer on The Listening Post, which is Al Jazeera's media analysis show. And where am I catching you right now? I'm in London. So tell me about what took you to South Korea and the story that you originally went there to report. I went to South Korea to work on a couple of documentaries. One of them was a radio station that is actually based in Seoul in South Korea that beams news into North Korea to reach the population there, which is obviously starved of independent information. But when she started speaking to the North Koreans she was reporting on, Johanna found that South Koreans were missing information about North Korea, too. Yeah, so when I started looking into this, I came across these vloggers, North Koreans, who, following their escape to the South, have taken to YouTube to talk about their experience, not just of life when they were still in North Korea, but also of adjusting to life in, you know, the capitalist South. And when I was researching that report, it became very clear that defectors, which are North Koreans who have escaped North Korea, are an incredibly important source of information when it comes to North Korea. The vlogger videos rack up tens of thousands of views and likes, and the number of subscribers is growing. Hi, everyone. Welcome to my channel. My name is Jamie Park, and I'm a North Korean defector human rights activist. Hello, I am Nara Kang. I defected from North Korea in 2015, and now I'm living in South Korea as a TV star, YouTube student, and I'm also an actress. They rely on YouTube to disseminate or publish their videos, and that's obviously a platform that they didn't even know or heard of growing up. When the media reports on North Korea, the discussion tends to be centered around, you know, nuclear weapons, politics, the Kim Jong-un regime. But what we know very little of is what life is actually like for ordinary North Koreans. And that is obviously because, you know, North Korea's information borders are extremely tightly controlled, very little information makes it out. So to have this group of North Koreans that managed to escape, most of them uh, now living in South Korea, 
to use this video platform to share stories about what life was like for them living in North Korea and to talk about topics that very much speak to the imagination of young audiences is, I think, very interesting. Ah, yes, the corn pops. We eat a lot of those. Although the main food we eat is white rice. That's because my mother has never been on a date. They discuss things like what dating life is like in North Korea, what kind of food they eat, what kind of music they listen to. And these are things that I think make North Koreans seem a lot more human versus the very one-dimensional image that audiences might have of North Koreans as, you know, this, these victims, this suffering population in this very tightly controlled authoritarian regime. As Johanna mentioned, the vloggers are trying to show an image of North Koreans that's different to what many South Koreans may think. For people who are not as familiar with the differences between North and South Korea. When you talk about vloggers explaining how people in North Korea dress, what they eat, and how it differs from the South, is it that different? Actually, it is different in the sense that obviously the political situation is completely different. We're talking in North Korea, obviously, about an authoritarian regime, uh, a socialist state where people from you know a very young age are being told exactly what to do and how to behave versus a very modern capitalist society in the South. There is a lot of stereotypes about North Koreans. So what they are trying to do is show, well, we are not all that different from you. So tell me about... Kam Young Choi, she's one of the defector vloggers that you met in Seoul, and her vlogs focused on what life was like in North Korea. All of their stories are are remarkable of, you know, the people who escape, because obviously just the escape itself is extremely risky and challenging. And what really stood out for me about her story is that she was born and raised in a place called the Aoji Coal Mine, which is a labor camp in North Korea that even a lot of people in North Korea know very little about. I was born in a place called the Aoji Coal Mine, a labor camp for political prisoners who were caught opposing the North Korean regime. Choi's father was uh, deported to the Aoji camp and spent 30 years mining coal following the execution of his father, who was a political prisoner. She saw her friends starve to death But in the 90s, Choi was about 17 years old. Her family decided to escape. This was an extremely risky trip. Choi and her family only managed this because her mother worked in the office that issued entry and exit permits and had special privileges. Then when she was asked about why she was going to bring her children with her, She said that it was because the children were in such poor health that she was uh, afraid that if she would leave them alone, they would starve to death. They allowed them to leave and, and they managed to escape. Their escape from North Korea wasn't simple either. The demilitarized zone that separates the North and South is one of the most heavily fortified borders in the world. How it usually works is defectors travel to the, the northern border, so the border with China, and then bribe either some officials there or their brokers who help them cross the border. But then the journey actually doesn't end there because once you're in China, uh, it's still a very long way from there to get to South Korea. 
And once they get there, there are many factors that can make settling into a new life challenging. That's why up to 56% of North Koreans in South Korea live in poverty. Every defector that gets to South Korea, they, the government provides them some sort of resettlement program. So for about three months, they are in this camp or school where they are taught all sorts of things, uh, whether it is how to use the country's public transport system or about society or how to find a job or how to use a, a, a bank account. But once they leave that center, they're kind of on their own. They do still have some sort of support from the government and those who want to pursue education can get subsidies, etc. But because there's all these stereotypes and they are sometimes discriminated against, it is sometimes really hard for them to find the job. So there is a lot of poverty. On top of that, they obviously leave their, their family behind in some cases or their friends so they could feel very isolated, very lonely. They come from, you know, a communist, socialist society where you are being told what to do and how to live your lives. And then suddenly you end up in a, you know, in the case of South Korea, a very modern, democratic, capitalist society. And there's all sorts of challenges, obviously, that come with that, whether it's from something very simple as to how to use a bank card or how to use the Internet to learning about democracy and politics. It's definitely not as as easy adjusting to that life as uh, people might think, and definitely also not always as wonderful or dreamy or smooth an experience as, uh, as one might hope. And this was part of the reason Choi started to make videos, so that South Koreans might better understand what North Koreans have been through, Johanna said. Choi now lives in Australia and has children. She decided to start her YouTube channel, which is called Aoji Uni, which means Aoji Sister. And yeah, the aim very much being, I think, to educate the world about the Aoji camp, what she has been through, what the people who are still there are still going through. She described her life in the camp as hell. You know, everybody there was forced to work day in, day out, obviously unpaid, she told me that she witnessed her first execution, like public execution, when she was about 12 years old. Then she also talks uh, about her escape and the challenges of crossing the border into China and then finding your way to whether it's South Korea or elsewhere in the world where these defectors end up. But she also speaks a lot about the, the difficulties and the challenges of assimilating to life in yeah, South Korea or wherever else. There is a lot of stereotypes when it comes to North Koreans. They are considered backwards, uneducated, poor, sometimes even dangerous. Choi recalled one traumatic encounter with a South Korean student in one of her blogs. When I was in university, one of the students said to my face, why does our government keep accepting these communists, feeding them with our tax money? They should all be executed and their heads should be thrown into the river. That statement was incredibly hurtful. The average South Korean will never really meet a North Korean defector. Which explains why there is so much content on YouTube from vloggers trying to explain what life is like. What do audiences make of this content? What responses do the vloggers get? It's hard to say if these vlogs are actually changing people's perspectives on North Koreans. 
But I do think that from the likes and the views that these videos ratchet up, it's very clear that they are very popular with South Korean audiences. And when speaking to young people there, they all taught me that it is so refreshing to be able to hear from North Korean on topics that resonate with them. What about Choi's audience? What kind of responses has she gotten? Actually, a lot of the people who watch her videos are not just South Koreans or she now lives in Australia, so she's quite popular there as well, but they're not just Australians or South Koreans. I think a, a lot of the, the uh, responses are quite positive, but she also gets negative comments sometimes, even threats, which she believes or she told me she thinks might be coming from uh, North Korean agents. Can you tell me more about what those comments look like, what they sound like? Yeah, I think they are threats trying to silence her, basically. She told me that even though it does worry her and she's concerned about not just her safety, but the safety of her children. But at the same time, she said, I cannot live in silence. I've lived in silence a lot of my childhood and I need to speak up and I cannot run this YouTube channel if I'm afraid And as Johanna said, some vloggers face threats that they believe are from North Korean agents. There are real reasons for her to be concerned because there have been defectors in the past who have spoken up, whether it's on YouTube or on these TV shows or on mainstream media in South Korea, talking about their experiences in North Korea, who have been targeted, in some cases abducted and taken back to North Korea. She told me about what happened to one of the reality TV stars who went missing. There's a really famous case of a North Korean defector called Im Ji-hun. She was a famous vlogger, also uh, a participant in uh, reality TV shows. And she was living a bit of a celebrity lifestyle. And then she suddenly disappeared, only to re-emerge or resurface later, pledging her allegiance to the Kim Jong-un regime and calling her life in South Korea, quote, hell. And now until this day, it is unclear whether or not she, you know, went back willingly or if she was indeed captured by North Korean agents and forced to go back. But it does show that North Korean defectors, they do face risks for speaking up. There are also concerns for family members left behind. Choi has a story about her uncle. She doesn't have much family in North Korea anymore at all, but on her mother's side, she had an uncle. And when they escaped, the government knocked on his door to inquire about where his sister was and where his sister's family was. And he couldn't obviously answer that. And he was executed on the spot. Now, she isn't quite sure whether that was because he couldn't provide the information about their whereabouts or whether or not it was because maybe he himself criticized the regime. But anyway, that was another moment when she got extremely emotional and she broke down in the interview. While we can't verify what happened to Choi's uncle, it's clear that those who leave have had to make a difficult decision. So, Joanna, how do the North Koreans that you spoke to feel about what's happening in their home country? Is leaving the only option? So I think for the people who left, it is very clear that they left for a reason and they actively wanted to leave 
the authoritarian regime and everything that came with that behind. Now, what's much harder to tell is what North Koreans in North Korea really think about their future and about the, the situation. We obviously simply just don't know. Having said that, there seems to be some signs of change, even if it is very slow change within North Korea, whether that is because there's a thriving black market that has emerged since the 1990s when there was a great famine there which killed hundreds of thousands of people. But then we've also definitely seen a change in the information space. Threats are really starting to appear in the country's information borders. More and more foreign media is, is making its way into the country. Uh, whether that is radio broadcasts that are beaming in, say, from Seoul, or whether it's TV shows, you know, TV dramas, Netflix dramas even, that is being smuggled in on, on say, USB sticks or leaflets. So slowly, more and more North Koreans have access to information from the outside world. And thanks to the YouTubers, the outside world is getting more access to information from North Korea. But there have been other efforts to get information out as well. In 2013, the United Nations launched a year-long investigation. It was the first of its kind. United Nations inquiry into human rights abuses says North Koreans have suffered unspeakable atrocities. The UN Commission says there is widespread repression and torture in the secretive state, amounting to crimes against humanity. Pyongyang rejected the findings. But here's what former judge Michael Kirby, chairman of the UN Commission inquiry, had to say about what the report revealed. At the end of the Second World War, so many people said... If only we had known, if only we had known the wrongs that were done in the countries of the hostile forces. If only we had known that. Well, now the international community does know. The international community will know. And we've now known for almost 10 years. Johanna put this idea to Choi and the other young North Koreans she spoke with. So when I ask these defectors that exact question, like, how do you think history will judge the world, whether it's politicians, whether it's journalists, whether it's anybody else, for not really doing anything, considering that we do know what really is happening, or at least we know some of what is happening inside the country. And they said, very rationally, they said, the thing is, the world knows what's going on, but there is very little they can do. This is nuclear power. The world doesn't want to start a war with the Kim Jong-un regime. So change really has to come from within. And what that change will look like, if it ever happens, remains to be seen for now. And that's The Take. You can catch Joanna's report and the latest Listening Post episode on aljazeera.com. We'll also pop a link in our episode description. This episode was produced by Ruby Zeman with Amy Walters and me, Malika Bilal. The team also includes Chloe Kaylee, Miranda Lynn, Sonia Bagat, David Enders, Ashish Malhotra, Nagin Oliayi, and Khaled Sultan. Our sound designer is Alex Roldan. Alexandra Locke is The Take's executive producer, and Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. 
Special thanks to Jun Ho Lee for helping with the translation for Joanna's piece and Ju Young Choi for helping with some translation for this episode. We'll be back. <laughs> 